Trinity, how are we doing? This week I uh, got a text message from a friend living in Oklahoma. He said I had to sell a Chiefs jersey online. It was just got it was too big for me. And lo and behold, uh, a guy from Olathe, which is right outside Kansas City, bought it. His name was Jesus. And he said, this is definitive proof that Jesus is, in fact, a Chiefs fan. <laughs> so anyway, uh, so Jesus will, will not be watching the game today, not be affecting any of the games. So anyway, the, uh, before we get to Daniel 5, I want to introduce something very special to us. We have a new youth pastor. He uh, was raised in South Florida, uh, attended Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicagoland, uh, been working, was ordained in the Lutheran Church, a Lutheran church about the similar size uh, in age and uh, theology as, as Eco. And so he arrived uh, Tuesday, and then his family came, and then all the stuff came, and then he was up till 3 o'clock in the morning, and then he started church uh, Wednesday and with the riptide on Wednesday. And so this is how you get thrown in to Trinity Well Springs Church. And so I want to introduce Christian Ikovic. Uh, bonus, if you know how to spell his last name and pronounce it by the end of the service, but I want to uh, invite Christian up to introduce him to you. We're going to pray for him. You'll hear from him, I'm sure, shortly. I'm just glad he's not six foot nine. <laughs> we are now form a team against the Goliaths. So me, Steve, Christian. And so uh, Christian will be transferring his ordination from the Lutheran, uh, Lutheran Congregation's in, in Mission for Christ, LCMC, into ECO uh, momentarily as, uh, as we get everything straightened out. And so we'll have his uh, ordination and installation uh, probably later this year uh, by the grace of God. And so, Christian, we are so thankful for you for uh, hearing the call of God for coming into this with a great um, Christ-centered um, ministry and bringing your family, Lydia, and his two kids, you will get to know soon enough. But wanted to pray for Christian and thank the Lord uh, for bringing Christian and his family to us and to Satellite Beach and to Trinity Well Springs Church. We're looking forward to a great season of ministry, continuing in the beach house, for his pastoral heart, for his humility, for his um, throwing himself in uh, and being all in with the church of Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Father, thank you for Christian. Lord, thank you for bringing him. Lord, we as a search team, folks and leaders in the beach house, we're excited for this next season of riptide and dive in the beach house. And Lord, we thank you for his gifts and his passions, Lord, that he comes to share with us, Lord, we pray and we trust that he will make us a better church and his unique giftings is the, the giftings that uh, you, O oh Lord, through the cause of Christ, need for this moment. And so equip him, give him encouragement. Lord, use his life for your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. 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 We're excited. And really, with his two cute kids, we're like, yeah, now that really put it over the top. You know, I don't, I don't know what uh, put it over the top for my search committee, uh, because uh, I don't know if they even met my kids. So, 
So anyway, uh, Christian had a great advantage, and uh, we love his family, and we think he's going to do really well. Well, Daniel chapter 5, we're continuing this sermon series on the book of Daniel. I think it's been over 10 to 15 years, Jonah excluded, that our church family has gone chapter by chapter through a prophetical book. And so I want to ask this question. I want to frame our discussion and thinking through Daniel 5 like this. If I was a visiting evangelist brought to town, forced to preach on Daniel chapter 5, what would I say? What points would I make? What questions would I ask? I might ask these questions stemming from our text in Daniel chapter 5. Who has the power to bring about change? How do you change? And will you change when the writing is on the wall? Who, how, and the third question is really a question of when. First question, who has the power to bring about true and lasting change in our world and in our lives? In chapter 5, we meet a new Babylonian king, King Belshazzar. And Belshazzar is despising Daniel's God and demeaning Daniel's status. He asks for the golden vessels that have been taken out of the temple of Yahweh, verse 2 through 4. He makes a mockery of Yahweh by praising the gods, then and there, of gold and silver, bronze, iron, and wood. And then he does this in verse 13. He demeans Daniel's status. He says this in verse 13. You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought, parenthetical, preacher's note, forcefully, brutally, from Judah. In other words, Daniel, I am toying with the vessels of your God, and I'm trifling with your status, namely, that you are nothing but a lowly exile. Daniel, if your God had power, I wouldn't be drinking from the vessels of his temple. Daniel, if your God had power, then you would not be here in faraway Babylon in exile. Where is the power and who has it? In the 6th century B.C. and in our day, people will tell you forthrightly, politicians, rulers, kings, these are the people who have the power in our world. Yet the book of Daniel wants to tell you, wants to communicate to you, beware of political idolatry. People of God, when you think politicians, kings, and rulers have the real power in this world, you are thinking like the world. And so Daniel wants to tell you loud and clear, this is nothing more than political idolatry. How many of us stand convicted? How many of us are guilty? When we look at CNN, when we look at Fox News, what is coming out of these entertainment news networks is nothing more than political idolatry. And so Daniel is challenging me and he's challenging you. Beware of the political idolatry in your heart and in your rhetoric. Who has the power 
to bring about change? Isn't this a great question for the Christian to ask? Isn't this a great question, perhaps, for me, a visiting evangelist today, to ask? This is one of the great themes of the book of Daniel. And the answer is this, the God of the exiles, the lowly God of Jewish captives, the God whose people were carried forcibly away from their homeland. This exiled God is about to bring mighty Babylon to its very knees. This is the sovereign God who rules history and brings about real change. Friends, this is what we might call a redemptive storyline. A redemptive storyline that is repeated over and over and over again in the Bible. You know when uh, somebody preaches and, and, and continues to repeat a theme? I remember hearing this when I was a youth pastor. There was a speaker who went on this winter retreat. And he was asking these junior high students, you know when uh, John wants to communicate something really important, he talks like a middle school girl. And I was intrigued. He goes, you know, when a middle school girl says something, you know, do you like Tommy or do you like Tommy? And then she goes, or do you like, like, like Tommy? And he was saying, this is what John does in the book of Revelation, holy Holy, holy. He said, so when God wants to repeat something, he repeats himself like a middle school girl. I don't know about that. But here it is, the redemptive storyline repeated again and again. It's repeated in the book of Exodus. The powerful God of the Exodus was none other than the God of the slaves in Egypt. How surprising must this have been to all of the Egyptians? We had these people under our thumb. It's repeated now in the book of Daniel. The exiled God of Jewish captives. This God somehow has real power in the world, and it makes absolutely no sense to King Nebuchadnezzar and now to Belshazzar. This redemptive storyline is also repeated by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament when he writes this, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. He says, But we... Emphasizing we, but we, the people of God, we, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Then he says, but those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is what? Christ is the power of God and Christ is the wisdom of God. But here's the, here's the key. It's a hidden power and it's a hidden wisdom. It makes no human sense that the God of the exiles and the God of these ex, uh, the exodus has real power in the face of Pharaoh and in the backyard of Babylon. Just like it makes no sense that a crucified Christ, Paul says, is the hope of the world. One writer says it like this, for the Jews, the Messiah must be mighty. For the Greeks, he must be slick. Jews want strength. Greeks Greeks want style. Do you get a feeling how much we are like the Greeks in our world today? We want a slick and stylized Messiah. 
Jews are interested in power, Greeks in packaging. Jews demand sign, Greeks seek wisdom, Americans want therapy. But he says, but we preach Christ as the crucified one. Who has the power to bring about change in your life and change in our world? Self-help books? The philosophy of the moment? The empty promises of happiness in our world? The latest pleasure that quickly turns into an addiction? The newest gadget or toy? Or maybe you should just begin to make change for change's sake. New job, new city, new spouse, new church, new anything during these days of COVID just to make your life better. Or or can you simply trust that God and His Word by the Spirit has the power to bring change into your life and to bring lasting change? transformation. But it takes courage, does it not, to continue to believe that, that the God of the exiles, the God of the exodus, this crucified Savior really has the power to change when so many other sources of change are constantly being promised to you in this world. Second question is this. How do you change? How does transformation really happen? One answer that many people give both inside and outside the church is that transformation happens through information. Educate the minds, they say, and certain behaviors will logically follow. Christians also behave and act sometimes as if spiritual transformation happens in this way, that it only requires the head to be filled so that the heart can be changed. Working with this view, sociologists working in Southern Africa years ago surmised that if only people knew the dangers posed by the HIV-AIDS pandemic and the deadly risks involved in certain types of behaviors, then people would begin to experience and transform their own lives and their lifestyle choices. When I was in Central Africa, when I was in Equatorial Guinea, I had the privilege of counseling several people with HIV AIDS on several occasions. I led a Bible study for a season for a support group of HIV positive people. And I distinctly remember being shocked for some reason at the research. I was reading of pockets of information, of pockets of transmission and infection in Southern Africa where people 18 to 35 had a 40 to 45% HIV AIDS infection rate. So sociologists armed with this research came into these areas to do a sort of blitzkrieg of information. Surely if these people knew that they are basically playing Russian roulette with their lives based on the statistical data, their behaviors would change. And so what happened? The blitzkrieg of information ensued in Botswana, in South Africa. If you're 18 to 35, 40 to 45 percent of you have HIV. Be very careful. Guess what? Nothing changed. 
The research was incredible. Absolutely nothing changed behaviorally because of all this information. Why? Because that's not how transformation works. Information alone does not lead to change behavior. In fact, I would suggest that spiritually speaking, most of us have all the information we need to live faithful and obedient Christian lives. The problem is not with our knowledge. The problem is not that we don't know what pleases God, what sin is, how to live a holy life. The problem is not with the information and the knowledge. Well, then how do people change then? Hold that thought for a moment. In Daniel 5, about 30 years have passed since the previous chapter. Nebuchadnezzar dies in 562 B.C., I think we have it here, after a reign of 43 years. And then in less than 25 years, all is lost for the Babylonian Empire. And so after assassinations and infighting amongst the political elite, following the, the death of Nebuchadnezzar, a guy by the name of Nabonidus consolidates power and rules from 553 to 539 B.C., Yet Nabonidus spends most of his time... I'm not great at Babylonian names. Let's just get that out there. <laughs> Nabonidus spends most of his life, most of his time in the outlying districts and leaves his eldest son, Belshazzar, in Babylon to rule in his stead. And so it gets a little confusing because Daniel 5, it indicates that Nebuchadnezzar, rather than Nabonidus, is Belshazzar's father. How is this possible? Well, Nabonidus had taken the name Nebuchadnezzar for political purposes to align himself with the golden age of Babylon. So 30 years have passed between Daniel 4 and Daniel 5. And about 60 years have passed between Daniel 1 and Daniel 5. And so Daniel, the teenager in chapter 1, is now Daniel, the elderly prophet, probably in his mid-80s by Daniel 5. And I say all of that, and you're like, you did it more than you needed to for me. I say all of that to make this point. Daniel the prophet now has the wisdom of life experience. And so Daniel gives Belshazzar a history lesson from verses 17 through 23. Look, Nebuchadnezzar, he was given greatness and glory and majesty. And look, look at verse 20. Then he says, but when, but when his heart, Nebuchadnezzar's heart, was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. And so you might have remembered Belshazzar, how the great Nebuchadnezzar, because of his pride, was made to eat grass like an ox. We talked about this last week. As an aside, there's actually a medical term for this condition called boanthropy. Old Testament scholar R.K. Harrison actually was visiting a British mental institution in 1946, and he saw a man just like Nebuchadnezzar wandering around the institutional grounds of this psych ward, eating tufts of grass like a cow and like an ox. And so the medical term for this is boanthropy. 
And I say all that to say this. Sometimes we think, especially maybe in the Old Testament, that this is a fairy tale or, or a farcical story, but there actually is a medical term for what Nebuchadnezzar experienced. And so ne- Daniel says, remember the pride of Nebuchadnezzar. Remember what happened to him, Belshazzar. I'm giving you a history lesson. I'm giving you the information. But then he says this, but you already knew all that. And all this information has done absolutely nothing for you. Belshazzar, it has not changed you from the inside out, you see, because transformation requires more than information. It was true of Belshazzar. It's also true of us. And so what does Daniel say in verse 22? He says, And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the God and Lord of heaven. Then he says this in verse 23, But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. So how do people change? How do you change when you're going through a difficult time in your marriage? You don't need anybody to come and tell you, hey, things are going terrible in your marriage. You know all that. But you need to be like, not like Belshazzar, who never humbled himself. How many of us never simply humble ourselves when we're going through crisis and when we know we need to change? How do you change your family? How do you change addictive behavior, the sin patterns of control or anger, fear, anxiety, always criticizing others? What is God's responsibility to bring about change? And what is my responsibility to bring about transformation? How does God bring transformation into your life? Here's Daniel's counsel. Humble yourself and honor God in all things. Humble yourself and honor God with the very next step, whatever it might be, in your life. First of all, humble yourself. Look in the mirror. Don't be a Nebuchadnezzar. Don't be a Belshazzar. Humble yourself before the Lord, before the situation, before the relationship. Don't get distracted by the situation. Don't alone begin focusing only on the problem, perseverating about the problem. Don't begin by looking you know, right at the other person. It's always the other person's fault. People try to change all the time without these two elements. Humble yourself. Honor God in all things. You see it all the time, don't you? Between husband and wife, between kids and their parents, in all kinds of relationships, in all kinds of dynamics, people refusing to humble themselves. Let me do it on my own terms and in my own way. Let me bypass humility. That never works. The first step, do you know this? In the Alcoholics Anonymous 12 Steps, is the most important step, and it's this. They, they, they say this, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. And then their, their booklet says this, who cares to admit defeat? Practically no one. Every natural instinct cries out against the idea of personal powerlessness. We perceive that only through our utter defeat we are able to take our first steps towards liberation and strength. 
utter defeat, personal powerlessness. This is the language of deep humility in Alcoholics Anonymous. Personal transformation is born always out of the crucible of humility. And so even in the church, have you ever asked this or maybe looked at your church or looked at your own life? Why don't we see in the church more change? Why don't we see more transformation? Because we are creatures who love to live our own lives in our own way, by our own ideas, with our own self right at the center. Humble yourself for change to truly begin. God, in my marriage, I'm going to take responsibility. God, help me see my part. Repent for my part. Repent and humble me, O Lord. There's a story of the evangelist who I think during the Great Awakening used to arrive at the new city. And you know what he did? You know how he prayed to begin that revival? He began to draw a circle around where he stood and he said, God, won't you begin revival with everything inside the circle? God, bring revival and renewal to everything inside where I've drawn right around my own feet. And second, honor the Lord in all things. Belshazzar did neither. He did not humble himself, nor did he honor God. Honor the Lord in all things, and you will see transformation in your life. Christian, you do not need more information. You need to honor the Lord with the information you have. Boldly call sin, sin in your life. Boldly pursue holiness. Boldly pursue love. Whatever obstacles might be against you, do the right, next right thing in pursuing little acts of obedience. Humble yourself and honor the Lord. This was Daniel's message to Belshazzar, and it still rings true today. And finally, the last question, will you change at the prospect of judgment? Will you change when the writing is on the wall? What does this mean? It means that when Belshazzar is throwing a party for a thousand aristocrats, there are hordes of Persians right outside the city walls. Historians tell us that these Babylonian kings were extremely confident in the city's double impenetrable walls. No ancient army stood a chance at going through these walls. It is true. Yet Darius's army dammed up the Euphrates River upstream that ran through the city of the city of Babylon and came under the city wall. And so Daniel famously reads the writing on the wall. Many, many tekel parson. What does that mean? Well, read as nouns, they are Babylonian coins of diminishing value, the mina, the shekel, and half a shekel. Yet with a different vocalization, these words can become verbs. Numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. God has numbered your days. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And so when you hear this, this uh, phrase, the writing is on the wall, it doesn't only mean that something inevitable is about to happen. It does mean that, but it also means when the writing is on the wall, judgment is on your doorstep. 
In fact, the judgment for Belshazzar is not delayed. Look at verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar was killed. And so in the Bible, the fall of ancient Babylon is always linked to the judgment of sinners, the wrath of God poured out upon the godlessness. In the book of Revelation, this is portrayed always as good. Evil is not called good. Evil is not laughed at as a joke. Evil is not experimented with. Evil is judged by God. Pride is laid low. Evil is judged. The godless experience the wrath of God. All these are associated with ancient Babylon. Revelation 18, verse 2. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. In that chapter, Babylon is associated with sexual immorality and, and pride and evil. And then John hears this in verse 4. He hears another verse from heaven saying this, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. And so the first question of the evangelist is good news. Who provides the power to change? The God of the Exodus. The God of the exiles, the crucified Christ. The second question of the evangelist is, a, is good godly counsel. How do you change and experience transformation? Well, through humility and honoring God in all things. Yet this last question of the evangelist is a sobering one. Will you change when the writing is on the wall? Will you change when you know one day judgment comes for evil and sin and godlessness? Will I sit at the seat of scoffers? Will I walk in the counsel of the wicked? Will I throw, like Belshazzar, a party when the judgment of God is at my doorstep? Will I change when I know that the writing is on the wall for my sin, my wickedness, my evil, my godlessness? Will I turn my back on a significant biblical theme? Oh, who talks, you might say, about the judgment of God in today's world? Who does that? Well, Proverbs does that. By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil, Proverbs 16.6. The Apostle Peter does that, for the, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Friends, if we never talk of judgment, the church will never talk of the cross of Christ, where the judgment of God, where the wrath of God was poured out on my wickedness, my godlessness, my sin, my shame. So here's how the Bible thinks. If you will not change because of the love of God poured out on the cross, if you will not change because of the fullness of joy that Christ offers in John 15, and we've talked about this, the Bible hopes that maybe, just maybe, you will change before the judgment of God. And so Paul says, consider therefore God's kindness and severity, the love of God. The fullness of joy, the judgment of God. These are all ways, biblical ways, that God wants to motivate you to change and experience transformation. And friends, you already know the beautiful good news. And it's this, the price has already been 
paid. The judgment has already fallen on the Son, Jesus Christ. And so what are you to do? Look to Him. Surrender and trust in Him. Pray to the Father, Father, forgive me and my sins. Jesus, you took my sin and my shame and my godlessness on the cross. Lord, I give you more and more of my life. So there is anybody here who has never prayed like that, never surrendered like that. There is always a prayer team here to welcome you and pray for you to come into the kingdom to accept the judgment of God on the cross. Won't you stand? We're going to do the benediction. The music must have gone long today. I don't know what the the music always goes long. Won't you receive a benediction? Won't you continue to, to ask the Lord of heaven, Lord, humble me. God, help me look in the mirror of my sin, my godlessness, and then look straight to Christ. Christ, you accepted my sin, my punishment that was on me. I surrender you my life. There's always a prayer team here ready to pray for you, issues big and small.